Hi, this is Alan Smith. Welcome to the Rare Book Cafe podcast, Rare Book Cafe Raw. You're about to hear the unedited soundtrack of Season 6, Episode 13, the one we call The Man from Wonderland. It features Jen Johnson of Covina, California, who is guiding the first ever virtual Western States Book and Paper Fair. It also features children's book collector Larry Raykow, who begins his first monthly visit to the Rare Book Cafe. The show also includes our cafe regulars, Mary Kay Watson, Lee Lynn, and David Hess. As always, our program begins about 10 minutes early with a free wheeling chat around the virtual cafe table. The lively conversation includes our host, Ed Markowitz, along with Jen Johnson and Larry Rakow. Let's listen in. Objects, three-dimensional objects. Yeah, physical, three-dimensional. That's a new word for me, R-E-A-L-I-A. Yeah, realia. Yeah. Realia. Okay. Larry, uh, this is Jen Johnson. She's uh, her and her husband. <laughs> hey, Chad. Uh, I, I, I can't right right now. I just have the placard up on my screen, yes. um, yeah. so that's fine. But hi, Jen. You know, I, I came in just as you were talking about this, and uh, I was just talking to somebody the other day about a podcast that I had seen um, uh, prior to the pandemic. So we were probably talking about late nineteen nineteen or so. And I wish that I could find it. I've been looking for it ever since, but it was about a New York book show. And uh, that was one of the most successful that they had ever presented. And they were amazed by the number of younger people who had attended. I mean, before this show opened, it was like twice around the block, a New York block of people waiting to get in, the majority of whom were younger folks. And uh, what they were drawn by was a heavy conglomeration of zines people people who were who were selling zines at the show and uh and in addition to all of those things that all of us know and grew up on and some of us make a living from uh in terms of antiquarian and uh, really fine art books the folks that were coming to that show and that were most excited and filled the aisles two and three deep for the entire run of the show were younger people looking for zines. And so, I don't know, as one of the people that put on shows here in the Cleveland area and Akron area, uh, we have really been trying to figure out how to diversify some of that material to go and bring in younger, younger folks. And this seems to be one of the ways. Sure. I think what you're talking about actually is the New York Art Book Fair. I think it was. Oh, thank you. That was it. We have a sister kind of fair here in Los Angeles called the LA Art Book Fair. And it, um, the aisles are packed. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have bands that play. It's it's truly an event. So, um, and yeah, it's packed with young people and there's a variety of price points. You can Mm -hmm. go buy a zine for 10 bucks, but you can actually buy like um, some artwork for hundreds of thousands of dollars. Wow. It's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Um, they do installations. It's actually it's actually a really fun space, and so you know, kind of uh, bemused by the idea of having a antiquarian book fair that um, 
had that many people wall to wall at it. I yep. Think. <laughs> It'd be interesting. It well, I, there, there's no question that the, the the tastes of collectors have changed. What I call the old 19th century brown books. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, just they're just not exciting and sexy anymore. It's scenes, it's comic books, it's three dimensional items, it's letters. Uh, plus, they're they're not so heavy to carry around. <laughs> that, it's that easier is to have a collection. True. Young, I, young people are living in uh, condos or apartments. They don't have uh, room for bookshelves with hundreds of books. Absolutely. Although I, I have noticed amongst younger collectors at antiquarian fairs that there is something about older books or books in general that have this kind of nostalgic feel. I mean, I think I, I'm, I've always thought about writing an, an article that says books are the new vinyl. You know, it's the same sort of thing. It's this, it's this kind of appeal to an outdated technology that you can actually hold in your hand and open up and put down and pick up again. And it's, uh, it's just a different, different kind of thing. And I think that does truly have a kind of appeal to a generation that is primarily digital and that and for whom space as you said ed is really at a premium which reminds well, me larry <laughs> go, go ahead jen i was just going to say that i think that people also just don't fit into nice categories anymore i mean uh people don't just see themselves as you know they're still book collectors but they're not just necessarily collecting books and um they're collecting uh, the ephemera. They might be collecting mm -hmm. the posters. They might be collecting records yeah. um, around subject areas that they enjoy. And so we have to be able to serve them in that way. You know, we need to be able to adapt and provide all of that in one place because yeah. it's all connected. It really is all connected. Yeah. And the more we can connect all of those communities and provide this exciting space for people who are excited just about collecting in areas or nostalgia or vintage or rare um, in all of those areas, the more exciting it's going to be for them, the more exciting it is for us as sellers too. It's fun to get your hands into some spaces that you don't necessarily know everything. So um, that's what I'm Before I forget, excited. I have to ask Larry, uh, can I put a want list on your website, Larry? My uh, grandbaby still has not arrived, but I know that my daughter-in-law is collecting Peter Pauper Press uh, children's books. And I got her the, the Japanese one, there was a Chinese one, there was a, a Turkish one. Um, so you're going to have to uh, help me find some more. Should not be difficult. I'm working okay. on it already. No problem. All right. Send me a list, whatever you have, and, and they're sold. Will do. I got to cover birthday presents for the next couple of years, probably. Will do. Good. Uh, so, so Jen, you're going to be on first, and, and Larry, you can hang in there, or you can come on back at. Uh, at yeah, I'm actually interested in what you and Jen have to say about this, so I will probably just be a silent partner here. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to listen to it and, and just hang out. Um, one thing I wanted to, to ask Ed, and and this is really a matter of you know ethics and appropriateness, um, which is, uh, since we're going to be discussing. Uh, Caldecott and Newberry books at this for this month. My website is featuring Caldecott and Newberry honor. Oh, absolutely. Is it, no, no, is absolutely. it okay yeah, we, we if I mention the website or? Absolutely. We, we appreciate you coming on the show and uh, you're, you're more than welcome to uh, uh, promote something okay. of interest uh, to you. Uh, Good. Not a problem. Okay.
Wouldn't do it without Shepard. <laughs> Uh, that's a good thing because we're actually live audio. So uh, that ethical question is, is now on the record. Oh, my goodness. Okay. <laughs> so to tomorrow night is uh, the uh, the Oscars. It's been a pretty sad year for watching movies for all of us. I don't, I don't even recognize some of the names. I, I have to admit that I have watched each and every one of the main of the however many seven or whatever films that were nominated as best uh, best picture. I uh, yeah, and and for a year in which all of us who enjoy film have been discouraged, <coughs> excuse me, from going to theaters and accessing movies in traditional ways, um, these have been available in other ways, and it has been. <clears throat> a remarkably good year for uh, for film. There have been some really outstanding movies that were uh, that were nominated. We've got two in the best picture category that were books: um, yeah. Nomad Land, right, uh, and The Father, which I think was a, a, a play. It's maybe a, not play. a yes. play, yes, yes, a theatrical you, piece. What did you think of those two? Um, I thought that The Father was, you know, if I was going to give out the best uh, the best uh, actor. Um, Oscar, I would certainly give it to him for the father. It was a remarkable performance, and uh, and likewise, I would give it to her for uh, for Nomadland. I just thought that Nomadland was amazing because so many of the actors and actresses in it were people from the book, were actual were actual people who are living this this life now. And when you say her, you mean Frances McDormand? Yes, yes, best actress McDormand. Yeah, absolutely. Um, although, oh, and now my brain is not coming. We just watched um, Young Woman. Um, <laughs> at any rate, we just watched a film. Two of the three words are Young Woman. And uh, that was an extra, also about, um, about sexual abuse. Um, and, uh, and she was extraordinary in it as well uh really really enjoyed that too but yeah there um yeah it was a good year for film well it goes back a long way back in the 1920s all quiet on the western front and then of mm -hmm. course in the 30s gone with the wind jen do you have any favorite movies that were made in the books or books that were made in the movies um, I'm not actually like a huge movie buff. <laughs> um, I like, I really actually more binge on junk TV if I'm going to be watching TV and, um, or things that kind of de-stress me. Like if I had to say something I enjoy watching on TV more than anything else, it's the Great British Baking Show. <laughs> I, I got Brad to watch it. I got him hooked. I'm like, it's very calming. Everybody's so oh, nice. It's, it's better than sleep. <laughs> yeah. So, but I did watch. I did see Nomadland, and yeah. um, I did enjoy it. But I have to say, um, because I have one of my best friend, she works um, with homelessness issues. Um, I was, even though it's bleak, I just don't think it was really bleak enough. I don't mm. think that, like, there was. I feel like some of the reality was missing about how hard that life is. So. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was a kid, it was a big deal to go to the movies and we'd put on our Sunday go to meet and clothes and my sisters would put on white gloves. And and I remember going, seeing the sound of music, which was made from the uh, the memoir, the story of the trap singers. Sure. And uh, I can remember all of the movies I went to as a child because I didn't go to that many, but it was such a big deal. 
to take the whole family out to the out to the theater. Yeah. Promising, promising young woman, Larry. Promising okay. young woman. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent film. Good, good. Well, I see the countdown has has hit zero. So uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rare Book Cafe, the book lovers rendezvous where the topics are priceless and the conversation is free. The Rare Book Cafe is the only weekly live stream program on the internet devoted entirely to rare and collectible books and the people who love them, and that's you. Thank you for joining in, whether you're on YouTube or on Facebook right now, please send us a message and, um, and uh, ask uh, our guests today uh, some questions. We're here every Saturday at 12.30 Eastern, 9.30 Pacific, 5.30 Greenwich Mean Time. We're streaming on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, we are, are now been turned into uh, a, a podcast. Our marvelous executive producer, uh, Alan Smith is uh, within hours of the end of this show has taken it. Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So now you can watch the Rare Book Cafe live. You can watch it on replay or listen to it any time of the day when you're in your car. And uh, we're glad to have you here. Uh, our two special guests this week are Jennifer Johnson. Uh, Jennifer, Jen, how do you prefer? Oh, to my friends, I'm Jen. So Jen. Okay. Well, we're all <laughs> friends here, so we're going to call you Jen. And uh, Jen is leading the first Western States Book and Paper Fair, and she's going to be on with us for about a half hour. And then children's book collector and dealer Larry Rakow of Wonderland Books in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Larry, you're on the. Give us a wave. Hey, a two-handed <laughs> wave. <laughs> Good morning, Jerry and Len. Good morning. Uh, before we get started, I should mention that uh, we are a live stream program, but there are several segments that every week we, we bring to you pre-recorded. Among them uh, this week is David Hess of the Bookman Store in Orange, California, with his popular feature, Things Found in Books. Uh, also with us this week, live and in person, is uh, Lee Lynn who will finishing up her segment from last week on wildflowers and illustrator extraordinaire, Mary Kay Watson will finish up part two of, of her presentation on the, the visit that she had to uh, the home of John Audubon down in the Keys. Uh, and uh, we had one visitor last week. I, I think it was Sophia, Sophia uh, when we were talking about poetry, mentioned that her favorite Home is the wreck of the Hesperus, and we'll be playing that for you. Um, one sad note, our hearts go out to the family and friends of Lee J. Harar, who passed away recently. Lee was one of the founders of the Florida Antiquarian Book Fair and the Florida Bibliophile Society. On next week's program, Jerry Morris will have a memorial remembering Lee and his contribution to the world of books. But next, we're uh, going live with Jen. Hang in there, Larry. We'll be back to you in a little bit. I hope I'll you'll be listening. I'll be listening. You'll be listening because I know we've got a lot to learn because over the last year, the industry, the trade has moved from live book fairs to um, online virtual book fairs. And our first guest this week, Jen Johnson and her husband, Brad Johnson, own Johnson Rare Books and Archives in Covina, California. 
And uh, next weekend, Jen is leading the effort for the very first virtual Western States Book and Paper Fair. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. It's good to be here. Thanks, Ed. Jen, I noticed how many fairs that you have incorporated next week, all the way from Fort Worth in the southeast corner of the West to Seattle in the northwest corner. Yeah, we um, well, we started talking about how much um, people are kind of, we're starting at the first of the year really to get um, just overwhelmed with so many virtual fairs. And a lot of us who were would normally have been doing regional fairs in person were just not seeing the opportunity to be able to do book fair live, um, how we could work together so that we could provide just one really great, great Western virtual fair and work together in uh, Rare Books LA, which is our regional fair that I promote along with, um, it's actually a family affair. My sisters are involved. And uh, we said, well, why don't we just get everybody together under one big tent and make it a Western regional virtual book and paper fair. So we have the um, Rose City Book Fair, which is um, based in Oregon, the Seattle Antiquarian Book Fair, Sacramento Antiquarian Book Fair, Rocky Mountain uh, Book and Paper Fair, the Albuquerque Book Fair, the Fort Worth Antiquarian Book Fair, and the Houston Book Show. So we've all been working together. Um, all, you'll see uh, when you come to the show next weekend, um, you'll see um, exhibitors from all of those shows under one big virtual tent. We're excited about it. One of the things I'm excited about, Jen, is that you seem to have incorporated some really great uh, pre-show uh, training or, or pre-show uh, segments and some, some some wonderful moderators that are coming. I, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we heard from the uh, Ephemera Society of America that they had uh, brought lots of new people to their show because of the educational uh, resources that were available. So tell us about some of the uh, uh, things that you've going on this week leading up to the show. Absolutely. Um, well, we're we're pretty excited. Um, well, first of all, if you go to our uh, website for the book fair, which is HTTPS colon backslash westernstates.getmansvirtual.com. I know that's a big mouthful. Maybe we can put it up in the comments. You'll see that actually there is a video that's up there that um, you can watch about how to shop a virtual book fair if you haven't um, ever shopped one. So there's a conversation that's happened between uh, Brad Johnson, myself, Vic Zoshak, and Laurel Swan. And we talked literally to, and walked through actually shopping a virtual book fair. So if you haven't had that experience, um, I encourage you to go visit that. And then um, we're super excited about all the programming. I And um, I know, Ed, we're going to talk about it more, but I really do believe that having events around book fairs is important. Education is important. Bringing like the people who... Uh, you know, just share a, a shared passion for books and all the things that they may be collecting or um, is important. So we're doing that through our educational sessions um, and talks. And so we're starting on Thursday, actually, with a great session uh, we're calling Collecting the West from an Easterner's Point of View. And that's actually a conversation between um, George Miles and of uh, Yale of the Beinecke and of um, Nick Aratakis from Reese. So, you know, these two great um, 
folks who are working in books in Western Americana are going to actually be having a conversation uh, from their point of view. And of course, they're on the East Coast. So uh, all of us on the West are excited to hear, you know, what their perspectives are. And then on Friday morning, um, we have another great session that is about collecting um, historic documents about Mexico and the intersection between um, Mexico and the United States and the history. That's going to be a bilingual session. Uh, to my knowledge, this is going to be the first bilingual session that's probably happened at a fair, certainly at a virtual book fair since they're so new. And, I was really, um, excuse me, that, I, excuse, excuse <laughs> me, Jen, I, I was curious about that. I noticed that the, the headline was all in Spanish and uh, I, I don't speak Spanish, but I was able enough to articulate the title and it's um, uh, Mexican manuscripts. Is that right? And I think it's absolutely wonderful that you're going to have a, bi a bilingual session. Who are your guests for that one? That is uh, Bill Allison and um, Elena Gallegos. Um, and so they'll be um, the it'll be in English and Spanish. So you don't have to speak Spanish to be to be part of it. And of course, the focus is going to be on important historic documents. So that's exciting. And you can uh, you can register the all these all these events are free. Um, you can learn about them, register for them. The simplest way actually would probably be to go to rarebooksla.com and click on programs. And then you can um, find out about all the fairs and you just sign up through Eventbrite to register for them. They're all being held, of course, um, through Zoom. So you do have to register in advance. Um, just a couple more after uh, the those... Uh, that one we have on Friday afternoon, we have Candid Conversations with Occultists. And this is actually about collecting uh, books in the occult and witchcraft and the differences between. Um, I'm looking forward to this because honestly, it's a, it's a hot collecting area. And frankly, I don't have a lot of knowledge about this space and what it means when we're talking about occult versus witchcraft versus, uh, you know, there's so many different ways to collect. I'm excited to learn more about that. That is with, um, Kim Schwank um, of Lux Mentis and Richard Bishop, and uh, they're both super knowledgeable about these things. And then on um, Saturday, uh, we have two other programs that um, one is with, um, it's called You Must Remember This, and um, she leads a podcast. A kiss is just a kiss, a smile is just a smile. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Right. It's great. And um, so uh, she leads a podcast that um, she talks about, um, she goes into the archives and she spends a lot of time at the Herrick Library archives uh, researching um, actors and actresses. And um, so she just, she's going to talk about how she uses the archives, which is exciting. And then um, in the afternoon, our final event is um, about the book Lovecraft Country. And it's... Wow. Uh, transformation into actually an HBO series and Lovecraft Country was written um, by Matt Ruff um, and he's he'll be our guest and he'll be talking about that and the development of the book and how it was turned into this HBO series so um, again he also loves to use archives and dive into history and uh, I'm not a huge fan of horror so I don't um, I have not seen the show I've uh, decided to uh, try reading the book to see if it doesn't scare the pants off me. So, <laughs> yeah, but it's it, there's something for everybody in our lineup, and um, 
the reason it's so dynamic and great is because we had all these people, all these book fairs working together. Everybody brought something to the table. So I'm excited by that. Do you see this sort of thing continuing after the, the pandemic is lifted and the restrictions are gone and live book fairs uh, come, come back? Uh, how do you see the, uh, the future of, of book fairs? Um, well, of in-person book fairs, I mean, I'm excited to get back to live and in-person book fairs. Um, my team, actually, we're uh, getting we're going to be sitting down next month for a retreat um, to really figure out how do we incorporate all we've learned from the virtual book fair space and how do we apply it to in-person book fairs. Rare Books LA has dates um, the first week of October to have a fair in Los Angeles. Uh, we, you know, we're looking at the health and safety aspects first. Um, and then, of course, um, if we feel like we can move forward, which we'll be deciding next month, we're going to see how much of this stuff we can take and, to improve the, you know, the in-person experience. Because we've learned a lot about how to use technology and it would be great to be able to have these kinds of educational sessions um, online, even, you know, live stream them at fairs or, you know, like we're just kind of leaving the whole, um, everything open. Like, what can we do? How can we take everything about virtual fairs and incorporate it into in-person fairs? Do you think there because, will be some sort of hybridization where future live fairs will incorporate uh, something virtual? I think that um, there's going to have to be some element of that because, um, you know, we've kind of opened Pandora's box and we can't like um, <laughs> close it again. So, um, but we have to, we have to do what's going to make the most sense for the people uh, who are both in the virtual space, but in the live space, you know, I think whatever is going to make the most sense to make the end the end product the best it can be and our customers happy what we should do so um i i you know rare books la has been exciting because it gives us a great space to be able to experiment with those things and um so we're going to continue to do that i don't know what uh, it Jen looks like yet though. <laughs> okay. I'm, i don't think anybody does but i'm glad you're thinking about it i'm glad you're you're you and your team are, are putting some uh, noodle uh, into it Definitely. because really you you may be the one that defines it well i think you know uh, there's going to be some trial and error for sure you know um uh gosh you know it seems like it's been a century but like you know it's really been a year and like the amazing things that um have happened you know uh with what marvin getman has done with helping to develop this platform that's allowed so many of these virtual fairs to happen and all that the Antiquarian Booksellers Association of America has done with their platform and the um, ABA and its platform. Like, it's amazing, like, how quickly uh, everybody pivoted and, you know, gave us this opportunity to continue with virtual fairs. So hats, my hat's off to everybody. Now, Jen, you're going to have over 150 dealers next week. That uh, you know, approximately uh, 20 items per dealer. Over 3,000 items are going to be on display. How's the cross section of of uh, attendees break out? You do you have um, uh, exhibitors from from Fort Worth all the way up to Seattle? 
We definitely do. We have, um, yes, I, I think we have, I haven't actually gone through to look, but um, you start to recognize certain names. And of course, there's a lot of people who we've seen before, but there's a ton of people in our exhibitor list who have never exhibited at a virtual book fair. So I'm excited about that. And they're oh. so they're taking the time to learn how this works and they're going to be bringing like some, you know, some interesting and new perspectives on doing a virtual fair. So um, you can see the full exhibitor list if you go to the uh, Western States Book Fair page or um, also to Rare Books LA and there's an exhibitor list and you can click through to their websites if they have websites. What do you think um, it what do you think it was that attracted them to, to this being their first fair, their first effort in the virtual world? Well, How have you promoted it differently? I think the key was because we're working with the regional um, uh, the, the regional promoters. So they reached out directly to the people who are who feel safe and have done their fairs and we've promised to help them. You know, we yeah. are private we're providing hands-on training to anybody who needs help. I recorded a couple of YouTube um, sessions so that you know if you just wanted to figure out how to upload your books and your images um those are there as well there haven't been a ton of, ton of questions actually it's been um you know booksellers are resilient and <laughs> smart and they figure it out so that's good <laughs> i know that rachel rachel markley the the president of uh, the um the cascade booksellers association has done a fine job of uh, reaching out to our members here in the geography that have never participated before. So that's good to hear. Yeah. And uh, she is actually one of the point piece people on um, helping people who have questions and she's so patient. So I think that, and, and enthusiastic, which is everything you need a good promoter to be. So that's why she's been able to build the Rose City Book Fair into something that's so successful. Um, I have a, you know, She's she's a great she's a great promoter. So, mm -hmm. great. yeah. Jen, well, I let me ask Jen. Let me ask you one one other question about the other end sure. of the of the book fair. What's being done to let potential customers know about the book fair? I mean, do you have mailing lists from the various uh, email lists from the various uh, organizations that are taking play that are taking part in this? Uh, can they be contacted to let them know that uh, that the fair is going to be taking place? Sure. Um, you know, Larry, my background, uh, before I was a bookseller, I was, I had two other careers. I was a journalist and then I was a PR executive. And I uh, come from the school of, uh, if you build it, they will come is BF. Um, you have to tell them that you built it. Um, otherwise they won't come. And so, um, we've, uh, we've, we have a ton of strategies. Of course, we're using social media. We, um, are, you know, which includes everything from Facebook to Instagram to Google AdWords. Um, we have advertised in all of the kind of um, low-hanging fruit publications of book collectors, find books and collections on Via Libri. And then we put together a package of promotional materials that we gave to our exhibitors, which they are using. So we make the tools really easy for somebody who's an exhibitor to also promote it. Um, and that is the key, like the key to successful book fairs is, you know, when you sign up as an exhibitor, your obligation is more than just putting up your books and selling like great material. You also have an obligation to promote the event um, because that's the way it will be successful. 
And so we try to give them the tools that make that successful. Um, we encourage people to sign up for an event, uh, a free ticket through Eventbrite. Um, and you don't have to, but um, for people who are busy, I encourage you to do it because we'll send you some gentle reminders that the fair is open. We'll send you a reminder about when um, special events are going to start. And then we send you a reminder on Saturday, uh, there's going to be like um, each of the exhibitors with the larger booths will have three additional items that will launch. So we send you reminders about that. So that's why it's a good idea to sign up for tickets. You know, Jen, uh, I used to think that WWW stood for the World Wide Web, but you have coined a new phrase, a woman of the written word. Mm. <laughs> you were a journalist, a PR person, now a book dealer, a book fair organizer. The written word is extremely important in your life. Oh, absolutely. I think that everything I've done be before my current career has prepared me for what I'm doing now. And um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I love, love, love book selling. My, my specialty is in um, archives. So my training as a journalist, um, writing succinctly, digesting a bunch of information quickly has helped me process through archives. And then of course, PR is all about sales. And you know, let's face it, that's what we're in. Like we have to convince everybody that we have the best thing out there. And um, that's what I try to do. <laughs> I would like to make one other public service announcement. And, and you mentioned that one of the uh, uh, sessions this week is, is going to be Nick and George Miles, George of the Beinecke Library. Folks, if you ever make it to Connecticut, you've got to get to the Yale campus and go to the Beinecke Library. What an amazing architectural wonder. It's uh, the, the stacks are, are, I think, four stories high. They're all enclosed in temperature and humidity. Uh, controlled uh, glass enclosure. It, it's just a, a, a sight to behold if you're a bibliophile. But check what their COVID protocols are first. <laughs> <Please>. <laughs> All right, Jen, maybe we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks and find out how the show went. Sure. Uh, by the way, folks, we've got the uh, uh, the, webs uh, the, uh, the website for the fair up now. HTTPPSLMNOPQRST. Uh, uh, but I think if you put Western States Book Fair in the Google search line. I'm sure it'll come up, Jen. Yeah, it will. <laughs> okay. Thank you. All right. Keep smiling. Of course. <laughs> All right. Now it's time for the Larry Rookow Show. <laughs> hey, Larry, I understand you're going to make an effort to, to join us once a month in the future. That would be great. I've always uh, felt uh, that I would love to do something like this, and uh, and perhaps once a month talking about one aspect or another of uh, of children's books, collecting children's books, trends in children's books, things along those lines. So that would be great. Well, we're um, uh, this week we're going to talk a little bit about the Newberry Medal and the Caldecott Medal. But before we do, tell us a little bit about yourself, your business, and uh, while we were chatting before the the, sh the show began. Um, Jen mentioned a word that I wasn't really familiar familiar with, realia, R-E-A-L-I-A, -A, which is apparently three-dimensional objects which are associated with books. And I understand that one of your specialty is pop-up books mm. from 1800s. <laughs> you must see a lot of realia. Yeah, I, I guess you could call that realia. 
but uh, but yeah, I I think that that Jen was right on the money when she was talking about that. Uh, there are so many different aspects to collecting, and book collecting is one part of that. Um, I know that uh, I have customers who love children's books, illustrated books, and novels, uh, but also enjoy poster art that's been created for children's books. Uh, who enjoy original illustrations from children's books and enjoy ancillary things that have come out around the field of children's book collecting, including things like uh, promotional materials that, uh, that um, uh, publishers have created and things along those lines. So yes, there's a very, very wide, wide collecting interest, I imagine in any field and certainly in my own in, in children's. But but our topic this week, your topic this week, is specifically the Newberry and the Caldecott Awards. Give us just a real quick. I don't, I don't want to go into you know specifics uh, of every winner, but just tell us a little bit about what those two awards are and what they mean. Well, within the children's book field, you are talking about the two most important awards that are given each year to both the best illustrated book for children, the Caldecott Award and the best written for children, the, uh, the Newberry. And these have been around for a long time. In point of fact, the Newberry, which uh, was started uh, exactly 100 years ago in 1922. So there have been 100 Newberry Award medal books that are, that are uh, in the canon. Um, uh, it was the very first of the uh, award books ever ever given for children's literature, which had been basically, you know, a second rate kind of literature um, up until that time. I mean, when you consider that, uh, that books for children, the kind of books we know now for children were never really written for kids until probably the mid uh, 1800s. Uh, up until that time, children read books or had books read to them, but uh, they were really adult books or expurgated versions of adult books, things like Robinson Crusoe or uh, Gulliver's Travels uh, or the Bible. But in the mid-19th century, all of a sudden, there were publishers both in, uh, in the United States and in Europe that started publishing books specifically for children that weren't necessarily moralistic tales. And during the later 19th century, when some great, great children's illustrators were established, and then into the 20th century, by 1922, um, who was it? Uh, Frederick Melcher, who was a magnificent bookman, a publisher and an author and a librarian, uh, decided with the American Library Association to establish something called the Newbery Award, which was given to the best written book for uh, for children. And again, up until that time, no no award, no credit had been given uh, to, uh, to uh, a specific children's book. And I actually had to go on the American Library Association website and find this, but just so that folks know who aren't familiar with it, uh, the terms of the Newbery Medal, and they'll be almost exactly the same for the Caldecott, but are the Newbery Medal shall be awarded annually to the author of the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children published by an American publisher in the United States in English during the preceding year. That's essentially it. It has to be in English. It has to be published by an American publisher. 
and it has to be published the preceding year. So all of these books that are published every single year in the United States in English are given to the uh, Caldecott or Newberry committees for consideration. Wow, you opened up a can of worms there. I, I've got a couple of questions. <laughs> um, uh, uh, first, the first one that comes to mind is, this is not just winning an award. In my mind, it's a bit of a responsibility. If you win one of these awards, it opens up every elementary school library in America for your book to be placed and almost every child in America to see it, to hear it, to hold it, to read it, or to have it read to them. Um, how are these books you know, um, creating the mindset of these very malleable young thinkers? How, I mean, it's, a, it's an intellectual responsibility I see to, to approach all these young children. Well, an intellectual responsibility and a cultural responsibility, and this is one of the interesting things about these uh, about these awards. I mean, there is, in addition to everything you've said, which is absolutely true, there is also a commercial component. Um, I don't know if this is absolutely true still. I do know that maybe 10 or 15 years ago it was true, but every single Newbery book, every single Caldecott award winner was still in publication. You are talking about books that go back to the 1920s. So you are talking about a, you know, a stamp of approval that is given to these books that continue um, their availability to schools, to libraries for a very, very long time. So, um, but in answer to your question, yes, I mean, I think that there is a responsibility and I'm gonna take the highest tack possible, which is that Every single year for these two committees, you have um, experienced uh, librarians, and this is again done through the American Library Association, experienced librarians who go and take a look at virtually every single book in these fields um, that are published during the year. This is not some sort of, you know, fly-by-night organization. This is not, oh, I think this book is great, I'll have this one. Each one of them is read, each one of them is discussed in committee, their good points, their faults all pointed out. And by the end of their deliberations, they come up with a book that by committee, they feel is actually the very best amongst all the books that have been published for children during the preceding year. Now, in addition to the medal itself, they also um, are allowed and almost every year do uh, designate several other books, which are called honor books, the Newbery honor books and the Caldecott honor books, which are a um, close but no cigar kind of designation. I mean, they are extraordinary books, <clears throat> excuse me, by and large, um, but didn't quite make that Newbery or Caldecott medal status. They are honor books of extraordinary quality and are also receive a, a medal. Um, so there are usually may four or five of those that are designated as well. But these, these are the creme de la creme. These are really the very, very best in this field that are, that are published during the year. Now, Larry, you said something earlier, which I think can uh, potentially be interpreted as being controversial, that the books are by an American author, published in English, in America. I mean, it's very obvious our country continues to change. Are those criteria still legitimate 
And should we be um, uh, maybe adding Hispanic uh, to some of those requirements? Or are there medals which recognize other children's books, but not necessarily by those three uh, yeah. native criteria? It's a very legitimate question, Ed. And the answer is that as time has gone on, more and more uh, prizes uh, have been established by the American Library Association that are noted at the same time that the Newberry and Caldecott selections are announced. Um, there um, are, um, let me just think, there is the Coretta Scott King Award, for instance, which is given specifically for books with an African-American focus um, and, uh, and received the same sort of notification um, as, uh, as the Newbery Caldecott. Um, there is the uh, Belcher Award, which go each year goes to a book that was not originally published in English, and usually a book that was published in another country in another language that has been made available in this country in an English translation. Uh, there is uh, the, um, oh, an award in, in honor of Dr. Seuss that is given every single year uh, for a book uh, for beginning readers. So that, you know, the, and, and these are this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are more and more and more uh, books. There's an LGBT award that is given every single year um, for uh, books that address those, those concerns and so on. But, it, but these are really at the top of the heap. And rather than, than, than questioning whether it should be uh, books written in English by an American citizen or resident, um, it's really interesting to note the changes that have taken place over the course of the years. As I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the Newberry was initiated in 1922 uh, the Caldecott, also that same Frederick Melcher, who we mentioned earlier, uh, was behind the idea of the Caldecott, the best illustrated book for children, uh, took, took a while to be established. That was 1937. I believe the first award for that was given in 1938. But if you take a look at some of the really early examples, or not so early examples of those books, and take a look at some of the contemporary books that have won that award, you really see a change in American culture. And it's one of the reasons why I love both collecting and selling those, uh, those books, because they are a looking glass into what both American children were being fed at that point, and, uh, and also the changes in illustration and uh, subject matter that have taken place over that, uh, that time. Larry, I'm really encouraged by your answer. That was that was that was very good. Uh, I think we, as people in the book ecosystem, look at ourselves as being very progressive. We look at ourselves as being uh, very thoughtful. And to hear that there are uh, a, a plethora, it's not a plethora, at least a broad range of other acknowledgments, other medals, uh, which are uh, uh, equally uh, valid and distributed across the uh, panoply of American citizenry. That's good to hear. It, it, it is, I'm always amused. Um, I, was, I, was in a I was a librarian for a couple of decades. I worked both with children, uh, with middle school and with high school students, as well as being a library administrator. And 
And the fact is that I, I was always amused during that time by the notion of librarians as sort of these, you know, little old ladies with buns on their heads who went around <laughs> saying, shh. And in point of fact, librarians that I have been in contact with have been amongst the most progressive thinkers and, um, and strong women's advocates um, uh, that, that I have ever been around. Uh, they are a remarkable, remarkable group of people. And, uh, and I don't think that the uh, selection of this sort of book could be in better hands than, uh, than the librarians of, uh, of America. Um, yeah. Uh, Larry, what's the Pareto of winners and publishers? Is there anybody who stands out as a multi-time winner of these awards? Or yeah. are there publishers which uh, seem to uh, identify the, the, the leading authors and uh, illustrators over and over again? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's more a, um, a determination of, uh, of the marketplace and culture during a period of time. Than it is um, than it is anything else. Um, during the uh, 1930s and 40s and 50s, there were certain publishers who excelled in the publication of children's children's material. Uh, Doubleday and Scribner and sure. Millen and Harper and Colla Harper Row at that point, or Harper Brothers really at that point, um, who uh, who who had children's departments and uh, who excelled uh, in. Um, developing children's work. As time has gone on, just as with everything else we were talking about, things have changed and there are more and more newer publishers, newer illustrators, newer authors who are starting to emerge out of the field. And, uh, and it's exciting to go and see that. Let me give you some, I actually pulled a whole bunch of books to the side. Yeah, please, because you know, I'm going to be a grandfather, I, let, let, be a grandfather an next week. Of the kind so of give me a couple thing. of books that I should put on my grandson's shelf. Okay, here we go. 1941, the, the matchlock gun. I'm sorry for the, uh, here we can take the cover off. The matchlock gun, uh, written by Walter Edmonds who uh, people may have known from, uh, from uh, Drums Along the Mohawk was one of his books. And this is an illustrated book published in 1941. It won the 1942 Caldecott. And uh, without getting um, too politically involved, uh, this is a book that the, uh, that the NRA would have loved. And uh, it is, it's, it's a book that, uh, that precedes the American Revolution, takes place in somewhat upper state New York along the Hudson. And it talks about um, a family that uh, is intent on saving itself against uh, an Indian invasion. At that point, the French and Indian War. And, uh, and the father has to join a militia to uh, save the family. But while he's away from home, this young boy on the, on the cover and his mother are left alone at home with only a matchlock gun, which is an old blunderbuss, a huge, huge gun that they don't even know if it's going to work. It's hanging over the fireplace. And, uh, and when the mother goes out to confront the Native Americans, um, the boy is left inside with this, uh, with this incredible gun. And he manages to fire it and save his mother from the uh, from the Indians, and uh, you can see from something like this. I mean, the 
depiction of the Native Americans and so on and so forth. And this is a book that was historical, promoted as historical fiction, and in 1941 um, was thoroughly acceptable. I mean, this is the sort of thing, it's actually beautifully written. He's a skillful author. The, um, the, uh, the text is very, very vivid and very evocative. Um, but it is a book that would probably be met with some real concerns if it were published today. A year or two ago, I mean, you're talking about a sea change. I mean, an almost inconceivable sea change for librarians in 1941 who were awarding the Matchlock Gun. We have a book called, whoops, there it goes, New Kid like so, by Jerry Craft. Not only um, does this center on a young African-American boy, um, but uh, a young man who is, uh, is inordinately bright and uh, has received a scholarship to an upscale private school um, in which he has to both identify um, with uh, the students there, overwhelmingly white, as well as to protect his own black identity, not only in the school, but back in his neighborhood when he returns. And not only, once again, was this given the Newberry for the best written book, but it is, and here's where it sort of blows minds, it's a graphic novel. Ooh. It is not what people would consider even a couple of years ago as the kind of book that was qualified for the Newberry. And yet, it is an absolutely extraordinary story, wonderfully well illustrated and beautifully told, and addresses concerns that, once again, librarians back in 1941 would never, ever have thought about. It will be interesting to see what comes out of this pandemic, what comes out of this national Oh, what's the word? Just this, this, this national climate that we're experiencing yes. and how that is interpreted for children and in children's books over the next couple of years, because I already already know there's adult writers, uh, novelists out there who are already penning their uh, perception of what's going on in the last three or four years. Yeah, could, could not agree more. I, I do have a stack of books. I'm not going to bore you with them, but I will talk a little bit about this year's uh, Caldecott and Newberry books, both of which also continue to expand what we um, uh, what we think about as traditional as traditional medal winners. Um, the Newberry this year, and I will answer a question that somebody put up about uh, about how expensive they are, because I would like to finish this at some point, Ed, by talking about actual collectors' interest in this sort of hey, thing. And, and, and when you do that, I'd like you to answer one question for me. Is sometimes you see the books and they've got the the sticker on the cover. With respect to value, is a book more valuable before or after it was awarded the medal? And does that sticker add or detract to the price of the books? Go Absolutely. ahead. Okay. Share with us a go. bit of the economics. Just, just want to talk about, uh, I'll answer Ed's question right now. Here, for instance, is Isle of the Blue Island of the Blue Dolphins, one of the Newberry Award winners. And it does have that gold seal on the front. And that is a question that is asked a lot of, uh, of book dealers and, and collectors. And the answer is, 
it makes no difference whatsoever in identifying a true first edition, whether the book has the seal on the front or not. A first edition is a first edition, first printing is what we're talking about. And, you know, if we had two and a half hours to discuss it, I don't think that we could possibly even get to the bottom of how to identify first editions easily, because there is no way consistent across publishers of identifying first editions. But many, many publishers now use a number line, usually from one to 10 on the copyright page. And if a one appears in that number line, it is a true first edition. But whether that seal is on or not has absolutely no bearing whatsoever in terms of establishing it, first edition. What it does do is show you that the book itself was handled after its um, a selection as a Newbery or a Caldecott medal winner. Um, how soon after? I have been at the American Library Association conferences in which the Newbery and Caldecott awards have been announced and then rushed to the publisher's booth to try to go and find some first edition <laughs> books. And I've gotten there as the person working in the booth has been slapping uh, the, uh, the award stickers on the books. And so, you know, it, it is not a way of telling a first edition, but it is, um, but there are preferences amongst collectors. And, uh, and there are some collectors that want the books without seals, other books, other collectors who really don't care as long as it's a true, true first. So uh, does that answer listener? the question? Okay, but one of our <laughs> listeners, uh, uh, yeah. Kim Henneman Barley asks, what about just absolute value? What can you expect uh, for a collectible copy uh, before or after the award? Yeah, Kim, it's a great question. It, uh, it truly is a great question. And the answer is there's no consistent answer to this. There is an enormously wide range. And not only does it change almost immediately as soon as the award is announced, but will, will also change again inconsistently over time. So that, let me give you an example. Um, let's take a look at this year's um, uh, Caldecott winner. A spectacular book, and I think I'm gonna take the jacket off because I'll eliminate the glare. A book called We Are Water Protectors. This is the best illustrated, was awarded, uh, the Caldecott is the best illustrated book of the year and is a notable book for any number of reasons, not the least of which is that both the author, Carol Lindstrom, and the illustrator, Michaela Goad, are uh, both indigenous Native American um, um, artists. And, um, and this is the first time that a major award, Newbery or Caldecott, has ever gone to, a, uh, to an indigenous Native American. Um, in addition to which, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous book. And... Uh, oh my. And talks about um, the importance of water um, to um, Native Americans and also talks about, if you can see this, the black snake, which looks an awful lot like an oil pipeline. 
um, you know, perhaps the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline, mm -hmm. but it's never um, uh, noted as such in the book per se. Regardless, this is a book that, upon its publication, cost uh, $17.99 in the United States. Not only um, is it a beautiful book worth anyone's collection, but it was published in March of 2000. The award was given in January of 2021. It received terrific reviews in the uh, library and publication press and was purchased a lot between March and the award the subsequent January. Which means that by the time that the award was announced, it was already in, and I think I'm remembering this correctly, in a fifth or sixth edition. Which means that finding a first edition of this particular title, and that was true with the Newberry this year as well, um, was really tough. And so instead of spending $17.99 on it, almost the next day, the least that you could find this book for was about $85 and prices going up to $150, $175. And that has not changed and that will only escalate. You can take a book um, like um, Where the Wild Things Are, yeah. um, right? Maurice Sendak's famous of book. Of course. Um, that was a 60s um, uh, best book, um, um, Cold Account Award winner. And uh, that book, that book was uh, three dollars and twenty-five cents, if I'm remembering correctly, three fifty or three twenty-five, when it was published. Um, once again, a book that honestly was not terribly well noted when it was published. A lot of the editions, first editions, went into libraries, and uh, now, admittedly, many years later, but that is a book that on the children's first edition market will go for anywhere between. $3,500 and $12,000. Oh, so that, yeah, there's a wide range. Well, I, we've talked about that a little bit on the show the, the last couple of months, as we saw with the uh, Dr. Seuss books were taken off mm, the market. Yes. Oh, yeah. We saw when uh, Beverly Clary passed away. I think uh, we should all realize that there are uh, there's market price and then there is uh, panic price. Absolutely. If, if we're collectors, long-term collectors, we'll hold on. Uh, for the right book at the right time. I couldn't agree more. And I would love to have a discussion at some point about that Seuss phenomenon, along with other Dr. Seuss books. But that was something, that was the madness of crowds that uh, that yeah. is almost inconceivable for those of us who have been schooled in this. You know, it, it just broke every single rule of book collecting. So um, before we let you go, Larry, I want to yeah. ask you a, a question here and uh, put you on the spot. Maybe you may or may not know this. Has there ever been a book that's won both medals in the same year? And has there ever been an author who both wrote and illustrated the book to earn the medal? Yes. Well, the answer to the second part of the question is yes. I mean, you can take a look at something like um, like Maurice Sendak's, um, you know, Where the Wild Things Are, in which he both wrote and, uh, and drew the pictures. And that's, that's not uncommon at all. There have been, um, in fact, recent books. I don't know if I have it with me. I don't believe that I do. Uh, Last Stop on Market Street 
was a book that both won the Newbery Medal three, three or four years ago, maybe five, and also was a Caldecott honor book. Yes, I'm getting that right. So that there have been a number that have uh, received noti notice in both, not necessarily both as winners, and there has never been a book that has won both the Newbery and the Caldecott the same year, but certainly books that have been, that have won one major award and in the other category have been noted as an honor book. And those are pretty terrific books. Uh, Larry, I'm so excited to have you on the show today and have you on the show at least once a month in the future. Uh, I'm learning so much. This is not my field of expertise, but uh, <laughs> all bibliophiles like to learn a little bit about uh, what we don't know. Uh, before we let you go, one last question. I keep saying one last question, one last question. All right. This is probably the last one. Larry, you've got four grandchildren. Mm -hmm. What are you going to read them? Well, I'll tell, tell you what, what you're going to read your grandchildren. I, I will tell you what I do for them. And, and the answer is I read them just about everything. We love, we okay. love books in the house. But the collection that I've started for them are the Newbery and Caldecott letters. Every year um, I go out, I find first editions of the Newbery and the Caldecott metal books, and I give them to them as Christmas presents. And uh, and that is something that hopefully by the time they reach college age, they can sell and afford, you know, I was going to say their first year of tuition, but knowing the way the college <laughs> costs are going up, maybe their first year of textbooks for, the, uh, for, for that. So that's possible. You know, for those of you who are interested in, uh, in Caldecott and Newberry selections and honor books, um, I'll just do a little tiny plug, which is uh, my own website is uh, wonderland100.com. www.wonderland100. 100 is numerals, 100.com. And this time around, we're featuring 100 Newberry and Caldecott honor books. And uh, there are some absolutely terrific selections on those. For those of you who enjoy children's books and uh, and want to see what some of the best of the best over time have been. So that's it for me. Good. Well, that, that's, that's not enough for me. So we're going to have you back next month. And I'm looking for Got anything you think you might want to bring up next time? What are you thinking about your next subject? Oh, there are a couple of things, although I have to admit that that Seuss thing has really piqued my interest. Um, no, we'll we'll figure it out. Okay. Between now and then. Great. Okay. All right, everybody. Larry Rookow from Wonderland Books in Cleveland Heights, Ohio. Thank you, Larry. Looking forward to having you on in the future. Okay, everybody. Welcome back uh, to our next segment. Uh, our next segment is... Um, a, a weekly segment, Things Found in Old Books. Now, before we get started, I'd like to remind you that after uh, Things Found in Old Books, uh, we're going to have Mary Kay Watson returning with her segment on John Audubon. We're going to have Lee Lynn finishing up from Wildflowers in the Spring last week. And then Poetry Month, I think we've got a couple more of uh, recorded, recited poems Y'all seem to uh, enjoy that when we did it a couple of weeks ago. We've got a couple more lined up for you this week. But now, bookman David Hess of the Bookman Store in Orange, California. He's been a bookman for decades, and all that time, he's been finding the most fascinating things inside of the many books he buys. Here he is in his pre-recorded segment, Things Found in Books.
Hello, this is David from the Bookman in Orange, California, welcoming you to our weekly segment on things found in old books. And uh, this week, uh, I would like to concentrate on just photographs found in used books currently. Um, I talked a little bit about photographs last week, and uh, this week it's going to be all photos that have passed through my hands lately. Uh, we'll start it off with this little book on diabetes. Diabetes, it's treatment by insulin and diet, published in 1926. Uh, it's an interesting book in itself. But within the book, I found a little grouping of photos. And one photo here, beginning on the very, here is a, a woman standing in front of a car. In the back, it's dated December 3rd, 1940. And uh, the architecture behind her uh, leads me to believe that this is Southern California, probably LA. And uh, uh, She's standing there in front of her 1940-ish, I don't know anything about cars, <laughs> her car. Uh, and that's a great picture. Uh, following that picture is uh, on the same date on the back, taken at the same time, I'm sure, is a picture of her daughter or niece uh, in a, a little veil. And, uh, so she's probably off to some sort of ceremony or something. Uh, I'm not sure what's going on. It's it's up to us to guess. That's the thing with these photographs is they, unless they write the stuff on the back, you just get to add your own story. And lastly, in the same group of photographs, I believe this is the same woman that was standing in front of the car. She looks the same. Uh, walking down a rather busy street, probably a Los Angeles street. Back in the 40s, it's a lot of people out and about with the uh, current wear or costume of the day, little signs, uh, heralding specials. It's a, it's a quite a, it's a great little photograph. I like this one a lot. And uh, again, you can only guess that what's going on and, and uh, but you get a sense of the time and the place and, uh, and because it's a uh, uh, amateur photographs it it really it really adds more to it than a professional photograph I think uh, found in this book here uh, Miro uh, I found this photograph dated 1982 on the back and uh, it shows uh, a woman walking down the street uh, behind a herd of cattle. Looks like the cattle are crossing the street. And uh, behind her are some buildings. It, to me, I get a sense that this is most likely somewhere in Europe. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it. There's, again, there's no information on the back. You can only look at it. You can only add your own thing. But it has a very European look to it. And uh, I don't believe the, uh, the the woman in the photograph has anything to do with the cows besides walking by them because she's not dressed in any kind of farmer garb or anything. But uh, 
So the cows are crossing the road, and there's a picture of it. Now, in this book here, this heavy book here, uh, on uh, Vogue's Book of Etiquette, actually, I found this large photograph of a, someone playing a piano. And it's, it says, to Mrs. Gordon. She seen, it's, it looks like it's some kind of studio photograph. It's a Vera Ann Fleming. Vera Ann Fleming is written on the back. And uh, so Vera, and I can find nothing on her on the computer. And, uh, and there's no date as well. And lastly, for things that I've found this week, uh, I found this actually a while ago. And I'm sorry to say I don't have the book it goes in. Uh, I pulled it out of the book, and the book is has disappeared into the stacks and I, I don't remember what it, what book it was. However, I just wanted to share it because I, I, I found it uh, particularly interesting. It's a Polaroid picture. Now we don't get a lot of Polaroids. And in the picture, uh, sitting at the table there, it looks like a, an autograph section, session, is uh, Hal Linden and Abe Bogota of Barney Miller. And uh, just looking at it, there's a little banner behind them with, with the two of them. So it's some sort of convention where Hal and uh, uh, Abe uh, were signing uh, photographs of themselves for the show. And uh, it's a Polaroid, and there's no date on it. Hal Linden, uh, checking the web, he's about 90 years old, still alive. And a Mr. Abe Vigoda, he uh, passed away about six years ago. So uh, again, I would think this is in the 90s at some point, the picture itself. And uh, I like that picture. And lastly, uh, you know, I've been asking folks to send in things that, that it's possible that they found in used books and, and maybe a little something about it. And uh, I did get one come in to, uh, this week. So it uh, was from uh, Mary Kay Watson. Uh, she's also uh, a member here of Rare Book. Uh, cafe and uh, what she has uh, she says she found an 8 by 10 matte finished black and white photo found in a book called back roads of California the book has a darling book plate with the previous owner's name the book was published in 1971 so I'm going out so I'm go <laughs> so I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the poodle is a California hot dogging hippie and the owner probably was too. And if all that wasn't enough to sell me on the book, the gorgeous drawings and watercolors of California were. So here's the photograph that she took and uh, the book she found it in. And I wanna thank Mary Kay Watson so much for taking the time to do that. I, I greatly appreciate it. And I, I hope others uh, share as well. If you want to share your photographs and where you found the book, I would love to share it here on this little segment. Uh, send them to oldbook at ebookman.com. That's old book, no S. It's oldbook at ebookman.com. And I would be more than happy to share it. So I want to say thank you. Uh, thanks for tuning in. And we will see you next week. This is David Hess from the Bookman in Orange, California.
Thank you, David. That was uh, some really good photographs that you shared with us this week. All right, everybody, if you were with us at the beginning of the show, you heard us uh, sitting around the table in the cafe talking about books that were made into movies because tomorrow is the uh, Academy Awards. And this year, two books, which were uh, previously, uh, which have been since made into movies, Nomadland and The Father are up for best movies. There's a long history of books being made into movies and then subsequently winning uh, the best film of the year award. Uh, some of them include All the King's Men, The Best Years of Our Lives, uh, The Sound of Music, which was based on the story of the Trap family. In 2013, 12 Years a Slave won his best. Uh, here's a little trivia question for you. Let's see. I'm going to give you the answer at the end of the show and entice you to stick around. What two movies? won the most Academy Awards, and both of these movies were based on books. I'm gonna give you a little hint here. They each won 11 Academy Awards, and they were tied with the movie Titanic, which also won 11 Academy Awards. So what were the names of those two movies and the books that they were based on, winning 11 Academy Awards each? All right, we'll have the answer for you shortly. But until then, we're going to uh, bring on Mary Kay Watson, who just got a little bit of airtime for things that she found in the book. Hi, Mary Kay. Hi, and I want to thank David Hess for um, going through that. That was pretty nice. Good, good. So last week, you started a segment on um, uh, uh, John Audubon. Yeah, recently, you visited his house in the Keys. And uh, you could probably do a segment on him every week. Uh, there's so much to tell. But uh, why don't you pick up where you lost, uh, left us off last week? Yes, I could do a segment on him every week. Um, I just want to say uh, last week, Lee asked me a question about whether or not uh, Audubon's foliage. And uh, I don't know if she asked about the insects, but if the foliage was correct to the uh, bird that was in the pictures. And not all the time. I found several articles that uh, that the insects were incorrect, the foliage was incorrect. Um, so not all the time um, did he get that right. But before I um, cover a couple other things, I wanted to read out of the um, John Hersey book that I showed you last week. Um, he is the Pulitzer Prize winning author for Bell for Adano and lives, he lived in Key West in the wintertime and Martha's Vineyard in the summer. And this short story that he wrote, and I'm not reading the whole story, just a few paragraphs from it. He writes about the, uh, the United States revenue cutter Marion, which was la later renamed the James Madison, coming into Key West Harbor. Dr. Benjamin Strobel is waiting to meet uh, John Audubon. He's had a letter of introduction. And while they're together for the few weeks that John Audubon is in the lower keys, Benjamin Strobel keeps a diary. The diary is what John Hersey took this, uh, this information from, the story from. And I'm going to read some of the diary entries. And the uh, picture is actually a ship of, uh, it's a picture of the ship, the Marion. 
that uh, I found online and it was later named the James Madison for the president. And they, these are Benjamin Strobel's words. May 7th, rowing round the brow of an island thick with the wild hair of mangroves, we suddenly came at the leeward side on a vast number of our most familiar creatures, ungainly brown pelicans, perched all together in a harmony of satiation, looking like a retreat of complacent utterly preachers. How peaceful their ruminations were until our heathen infantry suddenly fired its repeated salvos. At once the water around us was crowded with fleets of the dead, the dying and the maimed, while others flocked away screaming over the sea. Did you ever see such sport, says Preston. It's a joy, says Audubon. Out with your knives, boys. We bagged 28 skins. May 13th, we sailed out to the Tortugas where at anchor we made the acquaintance of some hardy wreckers. The next morning, these men rowed us in three longboats with full strokes and good run of the hull between pools as whaling oarsmen are wont to ply, heading for Booby Island some 10 miles from the lighthouse where the wrecker said we, we'd have capital shooting. It was early and we were hungry and we stopped off on route at a small island that might well have been named Ibis Island for every bush on it held several nests of that graceful bird. The men took up from the boat lockers their tin and wooden plates that they used for mess kits. Each nest held a clutch of three handsome eggs and fanning out, we raided all the nests the birds flying off in solemn deference to us, and soon we had built fires and cooked ourselves a wonderfully hearty and delicious breakfast. As our little flotilla rode on with renewed energy, the captain sang rhythmic chanties to pace the men's strokes, and now and then the three boats would race short sprints against each other. It was almost cheery. All the men and Audubon with them grew even cheerier at the at the sport that ensued when we reached Booby Island. Like Audubon, the wreckers were all first-rate marksmen and they were armed with the best of guns. In a very few minutes, very nearly the entire flock of boobies which had colonized the island met its Armageddon. And this is the last paragraph I'm going to read from the book. May 21st, carefully packing a footlocker and some wooden boxes for tomorrow the Marion sails away. This fiery, affable man who, was quite, who has quite worn me out with his habit of rising at three o'clock every morning to prepare, to prepare for a day of hunting and drawing, nursed by nothing but bird's eggs and biscuits and molasses and never a drop of ardent spirits, packing, as I say, he turned to me with a beaming face and exclaimed, I've made a tally. I've bagged 472 skins in 15 days. That's, Very nice. that's John Audubon. And the ironic thing, when I read that, it's it's been a few years ago. It was probably back in the early 90s when I read that. And it shocked me. Because the irony is that the Audubon Society was started to protect birds and wild animals from that kind of just immoral killing. George Bird Grinnell, who was uh, the publisher of Forest and Stream in 1886, started an Audubon Society in his home state, I think it was Michigan, 
because Lucy Bakewell Audubon had been his teacher. That's John Audubon's uh, wife. So he named it the Audubon Society because of her. There's also a couple of ladies in Massachusetts who started an Audubon Society around the same time because they were so upset that women were wearing plumes, birds plumes in their hats. And it, it just really offended them that these birds were being killed just for their feathers. In 1905, the National Audubon Society was formed. It grouped all of these Audubon societies in different states together. And that's the Audubon Society that we know of today. There's tons of information about John Audubon on their site and all over the web. And like I said last week, um, some of that information is true. Some of it's legend. Some of it's just you know things that John Audubon said about himself. But I don't think you can overlook the fact that even though the man painted birds that were dead, and, and clearly when you look at his birds, they look like there is no life in them because he was painting stuffed skins. Even though he did that, his, his dream to have this huge um, double elephant folio of all the birds in North America, that was such a, such a great dream, an awesome dream at that time. Um, you, you can't overlook that. Uh, Pittsburgh University, um, I've seen their copy. They actually have it online and I um, sent to our maestro the, uh, the website so he can put that up for everyone. And you can look at the uh, pictures that Audubon painted. Um, the other thing I wanted to mention before I go is that um, something about the copper plates. The copper plates were engraved in London by Robert Havel Jr. There were originally 435 plates. As far as I know, there's 78 remaining. Peabody Museum has five of them, um, and they did reissue the blue skimmer. There's also a picture of the blue skimmer that I sent um, to our um, producer this morning. I don't know if he got that or not, but um, there's a there's a picture of the plate, and um, it. It is copper. You can see that beautiful copper color and there's fingerprints all over it that they cannot remove with, um, there's, yes, there it is. Um, you can see the fingerprints all over it. They, there's no way to remove those fingerprints, but that's what the plates looked like. The plates were two feet by three feet and they weighed 37 pounds. And there were times when John Audubon was away and Lucy was the only one bringing any money into the family. She was a teacher. And the rumor is that she sold some of the plates for scrap to buy food. Now, of course, there were, there were times when Audubon also had a lot of money. Um, he, he was up and down financially. He filed bankruptcy at one time. He owed a owned a plantation and farms in Kentucky at one time. But his finances, because of the times, were up and down. Um, I'm not sure if that rumor is true, but I do know that a lot of the plates were in a fire in New York, the warehouse that they were um, warehoused in. This is during Audubon's life. The plates were just, a lot of the plates were destroyed. Some of the plates were um, restored after the fire. Um, they did take some of the plates and sell them at, try to sell them at auction 
for their artistic value. And at the time that they were being sold, um, they only went for a salvage price. Oh, my goodness. There's an article online by a young man whose father owned the salvage company where these plates ended up. He saw the plate. He couldn't hardly make out what it was, but he thought it was a bird. So he, he took all of these plates out of the salvage yard. He had to really talk his dad into this, to letting him have these because they were worth a lot of money as far as salvage. And um, that's how a lot of these plates were put into museums because this young man spared them from the salvage yard. Serendipity, wow. Yeah, there's just a lot of information out there about Audubon that's, you know, it just makes, I mean, you know, you think, oh, was he a butcher, you know, but but really look at what he did. And again, I quote, you know, um, uh, one of my favorite authors, um, art for art's sake, you know, it, take the art for what it is. And, and well, I, I have to tell you, you brought up John Hersey. I, I know he's not the core of your subject today, but I have to say yeah. two of my favorite all time books. Uh, uh, one was Antonietta, the story of a violin. And of course, Hiroshima, Hiroshima, perhaps the most emotional book yes. I've ever read. I agree. I agree. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be back. You were talking about um, books that were made into movies. Mm -hmm. I'm going to come back and talk about Davis Grubb's book, The Night of the Hunter. Ooh. And subsequently, the movie, The Night of the Hunter with uh, Shelley Winters and Robert Mitchum. Uh, the author of this book, the, probably the only reason this book exists is because the author was colorblind. He wanted to be an artist and he studied art at the P Pittsburgh Institute of Art and his colorblindness kept him from pursuing that career in art. So he started writing. He was born in Moundsville, West Virginia. So you know, not far from me. Mm -hmm. And um, this crime that he's writing about happened just down the road from me about 30 minutes um, outside of Clarksburg in a little town called Quiet Dell. And uh, looking so, forward to it. Yeah, I am too. Thank you. All right. Very good, Mary Kay. I hope you could stick around and join us uh, till the end of the show. Uh, myself and, 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 and Lee, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll close out in a few minutes. But uh, um, appreciate it. And uh, we're, I would like to mention once again the, uh, the trivia question today was what two movies won more Academy Awards than any other? They both tied at 11 with the movie Titanic, which probably became a book after the movie. It was certainly a ship before the book and a ship before the movie. Uh, we have a correct answer, but I'm not gonna announce it out loud, but uh, congratulations to David Lauderville, who, uh, who responded quite quickly. All right, our next segment, Lee Lynn and Wildflowers of Spring. You behind the curtain, Lee? I'm here. There she is. I'm here. How you uh, holding up? I'm, I'm holding up just fine. Good. Uh, Lynn Thompson couldn't be with us because the uh, uh, he's been working in the garden and, and his allergies got the best of us. Uh, <laughs> They've been bad here too, but it's pouring rain today, so I can't work outside. All right. Well, we're glad that uh, we have you. Okay. Inside, all of our own. What are you going to share with us today? Okay. Last week, we talked about wildflowers and books. We talked about Shakespeare's use of wildflowers. And the meanings of wildflowers. We talked about wildflowers and other herbs as medicinal uh, in, in medicine. 
and uh, showed some books that were reference books that I use frequently in identifying wildflowers and in learning how to plant and propagate wildflowers. So today I want to talk a little bit about the ones that are actually in my yard. Um, we have about 50 varieties uh, in in my half acre here. Uh, of course, I don't 50, all bloom it. 50 varieties 50. of flowers on a half acre of land. 50 wild native plants. Wow. Yes. Uh, some are what you would call specimen plants. And I, Alan, I know I told you one number of slide, but let's go directly to number 13. Uh, well, is that 13? Okay. Those are shooting stars, um, which are a little, they look like little, little shooting stars. Um, uh, those have already bloomed. They are, they are pretty much through, but you can see how they, um, how they, hang upside down off the plants mm -hmm. and um whatever's next <laughs> just just keep showing okay trillium are what you might call specimen plants you might have several different varieties but maybe only one or two in the garden they don't really proliferate into large beds these are called either trillium cuneatum or sessile trillium uh the next the next slide these, this is the same, but in a yellow variety, Trillium luteum. Um, and this is, hmm, we missed some Trillium, but that's okay. Uh, these are wild geraniums, not those red things that you call geraniums, but a native geranium. And they bloom profusely in my yard. Um, Lee, there's no question they're beautiful in their natural environment, but they seem too delicate to be picked for uh, a bouquet in the home. They're not. They're not uh, flowers that you would pick um, in the spring. These there are four plants that really dominate in my yard. Um, the red ones are columbine, the native columbine that grows here. Uh, other parts of the country have other native columbines, like Colorado has a blue one that's just beautiful. The lighter purpley blue ones are the geraniums, and the darker purple are woodland flocks. And in my yard, they grow very happily together this time of year. And um, they wander around, columbine and flocks especially. Columbine reseeds, and it just wherever it comes up, I just let it come up. Um, and the fourth one this time of year for me is, well, those are, let's um <laughs> let's see what trying to figure out uh go to another slide and let's see what it is alan no not that we looked at that last week okay i think we may be missing some um anyway the flocks geraniums columbine and dwarf iris which are little tiny low to the ground iris that are purple uh, grow very happily together this time of year in my garden. Um, I have things that bloom every month of the year. Uh, in January, hellebores, which are not native, grow. I give them away by the bucket full because I have so many. And I give columbine seeds away by the bag full because if I don't shake them out of the out of the plants at the right time, then I would have columbine growing on my roof and in the gutters and everywhere. Um, later on, 
I'll have black-eyed Susans, goat's beard, thimbleweed, wild and non-wild geraniums, Carolina lilies, wild indigo, coreopsis, butterfly weed, um, maypops. Um, we have monarch butterflies that feed on um, milkweed. And, and we have gulf fritillaries that feed on maypop leaves. They'll be later in the spring and into the fall. Um, but I love are, some of those names, Lee. A butterfly. Butterfly weed. Butterfly uh, weed and uh -huh. goats. Goat's chin. Goat, goat's beard. Goat's beard. Beard. <laughs> goat's beard. I don't worry too much about uh, botanical names, unless unless I just you know want to. But um, well, I uh, heard you rattling off a little bit of Latin earlier. Yeah, yeah, and and the trillium. Sometimes it's easier to identify them because there's so many varieties. It's easier to identify them, you know, by a Latin name. Um, but um, the the butterfly weed is also known around here as chigger weed. And it, it grows on banks along highways and is a bright orange color and really does attract butterflies. Um, the does it attract chiggers? Uh, well, we have a lot of those, so it might. Oh, those are the worst. You get those in your socks and you'll be scratching yeah, all week. Yeah. Uh, Maypops are also known as passion flowers. Uh, the center of it has a cross, uh, kind of a cross pattern to it, and they're called passion flowers. Um, but we also have grown buckeyes and buckeyes are native to this area. Um, they come in red and yellow and one called bottle brush and the flowers on it look like a bottle brush. They're fuzzy, long, about that long, white, and they look like something you would stick down in a bottle to clean it. And the buckeyes themselves, of course, are the seeds. Um, the the uh, idea is you carry them in your pocket for, for luck, but they also grow extremely well. And and I've started kind of a grove of Buckeyes and my grandchildren have their own Buckeye bushes. Um, they compete to see who has the most leaves and Buckeyes on theirs. Now, that's um, not to be confused with the Buckeye, like uh, the Buckeyes from Ohio, which I believe is a tree, a nut that grows well, on a tree, right? No, these are tr these are bushes. But they will grow into large trees in the wild. Oh, they do. Okay. Uh, yes, they do. So it's it's the same it's the same plant. It may be a different variety, but it's okay. the same plant. Um, I've seen them. Um, for example, at Chattanooga Nature Center outside of Chattanooga, there are are buckeyes that are maybe 15, 20 feet tall. Um, my tallest one is probably four feet at the moment. But my bottle brush buckeye, my big original one has is only about four feet tall but it has a, a diameter of probably five feet and it spreads it, it spreads <laughs> um but my grandchildren enjoy them um they are very good at identifying them we take walks around the neighborhood and find dandelions and violets and buttercups and things and um so you know read and study about them and look for nurseries that specialize in native plants don't go out and dig them up in the wild uh, uh, unless it's part of a rescue mission where construction is going on and your local bot botanical society or native plant society is helping to save, you know, some rare plants. Some some plants do not like lady slippers, which everybody loves lady slippers, but they they require certain fungus that you just can't really move them into your garden. Um, 
and and are very very difficult to you know to move so so don't go out and dig up you know dig up things i told you last week about my father-in-law jerking plants up and putting them back in the ground and they they were did really well but you know i guess those were his plants and uh <laughs> and and we're certainly not in the wild so it, it's one of my favorite activities and um uh you know i hope this encourages people to drive or drive out on country roads and see what's blooming um sometimes they're not natives uh dan daffodils grow in old home places uh where you see an old chimney you might see a lot of daffodils blooming around it um uh, the same is true with some hydrangeas that might have been left at an old home place but they're all wild there are, are wild ones as well oak leaf hydrangeas and other wild hydrangeas do thrive around here um so i don't baby them uh, the soil has been amended some because red clay which is what we have here is not great for woodland plants especially for woodland natives but um you know let them surprise you let them come where they want to and um uh try to keep you know it's hard to say try to keep the weeds down when a lot of people consider these weeds so you know that's kind of hard to say but but i don't so enjoy uh, i do have a poem do you want it today or i do, do yes it? we're not going to make it to any of our recorded poems this week so okay. uh, we're right. going to have a live one all right this is from emily dickinson of course. Uh, of course we should not mind so small a flower except it quiet bring our little garden that we lost back to the lawn again so spicy her carnations red so drunken reel her bees so silver steal a hundred flutes from out a hundred trees that whoso sees this little flower by faith may clear behold the bobolinks around the throne and dandelions gold and a commentary on this indicated that she was that this was a fall poem that she was talking about how the yard had taken over from the spring wildflowers and that probably the flower she was referring to was a gentian which is a little bluish purple flower that blooms in the fall and um and you know was talking about not that it, the year was winding down but that there were still things to enjoy you know in the in the fall of the year so that's my wildflower poem good thank you uh there's flowers to be enjoyed all year round all right everybody the uh we're coming up to the end of the show uh i asked a trivia question earlier what were two movies that each won 11 uh, academy awards each uh, that were based on a novel and the answer was provided to us by david waterville uh online and the answer is ben hur and the lord of the rings return of the king ben hur uh published in 1880 by lou wallace is a uh, uh just an exciting book. Uh, we found one online signed and inscribed by the author for $1,250. The Lord of the Rings, a three volume set of the first edition, the first UK edition, published in 1954, 1954, and 1955 of each of the three books in very good condition. Are you ready? I hope you're sitting down $64,333. Well, it's a good book. It was a great movie, and that would be quite a uh, 
an entree into anybody's collection. Uh, we also found a standalone copy of the 1990 of the 1955 UK edition of the Return of the King, a fine, not signed, three thousand dollars. So, uh, who we got left online here? Lee and uh, Mary Kay, are you still with us? I'm. I'm here. There they are. I'm here. Uh, it's it's so great to have you contributors to the show each week. Uh, the, the the fans, the the folks that are listening, the folks that are watching right now are are sending in their notes, and uh, you're both doing such a great job. I hope you'll keep coming back all the time. Thank you. Uh, Mary Kay sent me some beautiful bluebell pictures last week uh, along the roads up in West Virginia. She's been busy. I always am. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on this week aside from prepping for future shows? What's going on in your lives? Anything fun and exciting? <sighs> Well, um, I'm I'm working part time in our local art society art center here, and to, going back to what Jen was saying. Oh, and by the way, Jen did a super job with the LA virtual show last fall. Really, really good. Uh, going back to what she was saying about about there being, you know, and Larry saying about there being some some way to meld in person shows, virtual shows. Um, we're doing that at our art center on a very small scale with fundraiser auctions uh, at Christmas with our Festival of Trees, um, uh, which are decorated Christmas trees, decorations, wreaths, table decorations, things. It was it was in person in the galleries, but it also was completely online and you could bid online, you could pay online, everything could be done online except shipment because we didn't ship. And right now we have a spring basket auction going on the same way. It is available in person in the galleries, but you can also see it online and bid online. Um, um, we we tried this. Uh, the basket auction was underway last spring when we shut down. And so we went to the virtual one at that point and it was very successful. And so when we got around to doing the Christmas one, um, what we added were detailed descriptions of all of the items for the virtual one and you know guess who got recruited to write the descriptions so um i did that and then i've done it for the basket option as well but that's working very well for us well you have to admit lee at least i admit it's wonderful at this time of our lives being retired semi-retired <laughs> book dealers that we can do the things we love not the things that we have to uh, this this working even even part time uh, sure does make a, a dent in uh, in any retirement time I might have. <laughs> <laughs> and what's on your schedule this week, Mary Kay? I'm just going to be drawing. Right. And what's your medium? You're going to be drawing and coloring in painting as well. I do watercolor, watercolor, watercolor and um, pen and ink. Excellent. Excellent. All right, everybody, that's another one in the can. Oh, I almost forgot the answer to our question. Oh, I, I did give it, right? Ben-Hur and uh, the Return of the King. Yes. All right, wonderful. Okay, everybody, another one in the can. We want to uh, extend our appreciation for you joining us this week here live on both Facebook and YouTube. During the week, you can tune us in on uh, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and uh, listen to us as you travel. 
Thank you, everybody. Welcome to the Rare Book Cafe, the book lover's rendezvous, where the topics are priceless and the conversation is free. Thank you for joining Rare Book Cafe Raw, the book lover's rendezvous on Anchor. The video version of this program was first streamed live on Saturday, April 24, 2021 on YouTube and Facebook, where you can still see the program on replay. The music for some segments in this podcast was composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Other transitional music was provided by Anchor. We hope you'll join us next time for the Rare Book Cafe Raw, and we hope you tell your friends. We're here for the love of books. This is Alan Smith. <laughs>